Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Dispatches. We are fortunate today to be with photographer Jesse Frieden. Jesse, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. It was just a few weeks ago, it's seemingly a few weeks ago, that I saw you in Santa Fe, and now we are approximately 3,000 miles away, mm-hmm. And um, which is interesting because one of the things we're going to talk about later is adaptation. And I, of all the people I know in the photo world, you've, you've done it a lot, and I think it's a fascinating topic. I think the era, the era of one photographer doing the same thing for 30 or 40 years, it still happens, but it's pretty rare. So mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty good topic. Um, but the first question I have for you is, and, and uh, we'll, we will get to sort of your bio throughout this interview because there's a lot of awards, there's books, there's exhibitions, and also a ton of private collections that you're in, which I find uh, that's a fascinating angle as well. But I'm always curious when photography became a passion for you, not a profession, but the mm-hmm. first time that you said, there's something about this that I find intriguing. How old were you and where were you? I remember it well because there's a photograph of it. Um, I don't think it's here in my house, but I was probably like three or four and my parents got me a Fisher-Price. It looked like a Polaroid. It was a Fisher-Price <laughs> Polaroid pretend camera and I freaking obsessed with it. And this was the 80s, so you could put these different colored films in and it would spit out of this white, cute little Fisher-Price toy, and then you could dunk it in water, and an image would appear. And I was obsessed. And that's when I became genuinely fascinated with like looking through a, a device to be a voyeur. And that just kind of always stuck with me. And so you were three or four, and when you put this thing in the water, was it reusable? or was yes. it, Oh, it was. I've, look, I've actually tried on eBay to find them, um, and now I want to find again. But yeah, it was like there was four different discs that looked like a Polaroid, and you can dunk it in water, and it was a Fisher-Price like drawing of like children or something. So it was the same image over and over again? Well, there was four different ones, okay. and so like the red one was like two kids playing and whatever, you know, the yellow one was different. But I, there's a picture of me somewhere um, holding this camera and just like... I mean, that's how Think, I look thinking now. Thinking you're pretty cool. Yeah. I, yeah. I was like, this is, can this be my life? And, I, you know, that was when I was really little. And I um, I was always kind of creative, but I was never good at drawing or painting or anything else. Yeah, or like working with my hands other than cooking, which I did. But, um, and so that, so after having that little toy, then when I was a little bit older, not even like 10, my parents did have a Polaroid camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember taking it from them because I was maybe rebellious. Um, and I would photograph my neighbor across the yard um, and sometimes like steal it to photograph my friends, you know? So I just was always came back to that. Yeah, mostly instant photography is really kind of how I, I got obsessed. Yeah, I mean, of all the things that a kid can get possessed by, that's a pretty pretty innocent and also interesting one that you... It's weird. It's almost uh, it's almost like a definition of knowing that there's something outside of yourself mm-hmm. that's intriguing that you're going to try to frame up at a young age. Yeah. No. Exactly. It, it really let it like worked for my style of interacting with the world. I was a quiet kid, and mm. everyone was like, "Why don't you talk?" And I just didn't want to talk that much to people. Not that much has changed. Um, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. But, well, that, but not surprising. Yeah. But finding you know really finding instant photography. Um, you know, I, I, I circled back to it in college and, a, um, a, a partner of mine, actually I was on the Cape one summer where I used to work and we went to the flea market and they're like, this is a Polaroid land camera. And I was like, what is that? And we went to the camera shop down the street where you could still buy film. And I still have that first pack of black and white pillow part film somewhere. Um, 
those images. And that, from there on, like my sophomore year in college, then I was like really obsessed. Possessed. Possessed. And, and sophomore year in college, did you at that point say, this could be my career? I didn't because I, I, my very good friends in college, we were in a band and they were all these cool artists. They still are, I think. But a lot of them, I think, took their art more seriously um, than I did because they had been doing it longer. And mm. then all of them became these famous artists. And um, so, no, I thought, like, well, I was doing Polaroids and that's not real art. Um, I took photo, like, 101 my senior year in college. And I, my friend taught me how to use a real camera. And, but I still never thought I could do it for a job until um, I moved to San Francisco I was working with dogs just as a job and my partner was a filmmaker and she was like, why aren't you doing this seriously? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so I took a class at city college and then I started taking it seriously. And what was your major in college? Literature, compilate and Spanish. Mm, I hear there's a good racket in that. And there's Com- a great racket in that. Yeah. <laughs> Comparative literature and Spanish. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I don't think you and I have ever spoken Spanish together. Oh. You, how is your Spanish now? I, I have that thing where I can understand it when you say yeah. it to me, but I can't make it come out of my mouth. Okay. That's that, and that yeah. was in, college was in San Francisco? Uh, no, it was actually out here. Out here. Okay. And so City College, San Francisco, you t- what class did you take? I took, I actually recently found my um, curriculum. This was, I want to say 2005, uh, 2005 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right, 2006. I took Lighting 101. I took Darkroom Methods 101. Yes. I took a portraiture class. And that might have been it. I didn't. That's a pretty, that's pretty good. Oh my gosh. City College yeah. in San Francisco in the early 2000s was amazing. There was a great dark room. There was a great little studio shooting area. You know, I didn't, I wasn't pressuring myself to get a degree. I just took some classes and it was cheap. And, and then from there, you know, I got an apprenticeship sort of. So. And when you were taking these classes and you'd already been working quote unquote with dogs before that was when you made the jump to saying, look, I think I'm going to make a go at this as a professional photographer. Was it directly into the dog world or was there a human world before that? There was a very, very short human world. When I was, uh, (laughs) I apprenticed, um, at this amazing photo studio in San Francisco, the it's at token studio that was all high end family portraiture. And okay. I apprenticed. Interesting. Yeah, it was, it, I think it's still around. Um, but I was first in last out every day for a year, unpaid processing film going, there was three other photographers, um, following them around, assisting on sessions and they all mentored me and it was incredibly lucky. Um, and one of them was like, you know, I, I wanted to try. I wanted to try to do what they did. So I did one session with my 35 millimeter camera, photographing some family friends and their kids. They had two kids, and I don't, I don't love children, and I'm, I'm fine to say that. Um, you know, they, whatever. They're just not my thing. So I tried yeah. to, to do some portraits, yeah. and I was like, "This is horrible. I don't understand children. I don't like they're being loud, and they like one of them hit the other one and was crying, and so I was very defeated. And my yeah. one of my mentors was like, why don't you photograph dogs? Because isn't that like a thing you know about? And I was like, that sounds dumb. Because at that time, there was only a few dog photographers, and they were doing very cheesy, wide-angle, bubblegum mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But so I took my Hasselblad, um, and I actually there's a photo in my office, you can see, of Gus the pug, and I photographed my friend's dog, mm-hmm. Gus, and everything fell into place perfectly, and I can't explain why. I like knew exactly what I was doing, 
I still love those images. And that's when I was like, this is going to be my job. And what's interesting is that normally it takes people a long time to feel around the edges to figure out where their spot is, right? And one portrait shoot for you. And see, as a former seven-year commercial photographer of children, when I hear one hitting the other, in my mind, I'm like, that's a really good, like, that's what I, I don't necessarily, I can't say on this podcast that that's what I want, but, you know, conflict, emotion, and for me, a great shoot was laughing and crying in in that, in that span of one shoot. And again, I'm a little bit like you in the sense that very much an introvert and I would have to manufacture this version of myself to do that work. Yes. But but I was enough of an extrovert where I could pull it off, but it's interesting that you it just took one one shoot. But the other thing too is the last thing you said about there was a lot of bubblegum style dog photography. When I, I I almost feel that it's not disservice is the wrong word. But when someone says, oh, I know Jesse, he photographs dogs, that immediately people have some vision of their mind. And I think a lot of time it's the bubblegum stuff. That's right. But when I see the, the portrait of you on your website and you're sitting in front of a wall of prints of those dog works, those are not, those are like, I don't know, those are just photographs. Mm-hmm. And the photographs, the light, the timing, the composition, these are really good photographs. And the subject matter happens to be dogs. Right. So was that a difficult navigation to get people to understand the difference between what you were doing in the bubblegum? That seems like it would be a constant struggle. Yeah. No, that, that, that was, you know, it's interesting to talk about. That was the only struggle. Weirdly, and I can't say what higher power intervention um, happened, but when I did have that first session with Gus the Pug, I knew it's like my style was already there, and I don't know why. Maybe it's because I was taking a style from when I was doing Polaroids of my friends and portraiture, and I just applied it to the scenario where there was a dog and some humans. But the only hard part in the beginning was educating people that, yeah, this is, I, I still think that I, certainly then and maybe even now, was one of the most expensive dog photographers out there because mm-hmm. I was doing it like I was taught by my mentors, uh, shooting all film, shooting my Hasselblad, fully manual, processing my own, film, making my own chemistry to process my film, making my own chemistry to make my prints, cutting my mats, cutting my frames, selling in a studio, all that junk. And it made sense, but I did not know how to market myself or brand myself in the beginning. My first website, which doesn't exist anymore, I won't say it was cute because I don't like cute, but I, I, I took a couple steps to get from the world of bubblegum dog photography. I wasn't in that world, but I wasn't where I ended up. So Mm -hmm. I was like, you had to kind of file it down and down and down and get to like the the heart of the matter, which was I'm a fine art dog photographer. I photograph relationships, you know, and I, and once I started articulating things in a way that was very honest and not worrying about if people would understand, then everything became super easy. Not easy, but my clients found me and the right clients found me. Yeah, and how much of the client work became word of mouth from other people who were doing the, doing it for you because they understood who you were. It, it, so much. I mean, I, I always, you know, kept up with my social media, my newsletter and events and stuff, but it was so much word of mouth. Newsletter. I hope everyone heard that word. You're sick of hearing me say it, but someone else just said it. So when I started shooting, um, you know, I studied photojournalism and, and the idea of photographing kids it just mortified me. It felt in weddings were the same way, really any kind of portraiture. I was like, oh, that's not demeaning, but it's just sure. not something that's ever going to happen for me. And the neighbor across the street who had two daughters, these really beautiful young little girls at the time, and she said, do you photograph kids? And I said, absolutely not. And she said, great, I'm bringing them over. And she brought them over and, and opened the front door of the house, pushed them into the living room and left. 
My worst nightmare, but yes. Yeah, and I stood there with these two girls, and I was like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And so they were looking at me. I was looking at them, and I took my Hasselblad and my Leica, and I thought, okay, they're my, like, doc project for the next hour. And when the mom saw the work, she said, oh, this doesn't look like what I thought it was going to look like. Mm -hmm. And she just immediately told all her friends, and I went from being a photojournalist to being a full-time portrait photographer. And so I, when I look at your work, I see those parallels because they don't look like these look, your work looks like reportage and, and portraiture, mm -hmm. like celebrity portraiture, but the portraiture happens to be of a, of an animal. Yeah. And why are dogs so much better to work with than, than humans? I mean, where do we start? Um, f for me, you know, I guess I, I've always been interested in relationships and that I think that's how I got started when I first picked up that plastic camera when I was a child. It was like, I don't want to be, um, I'm not a type A person. I don't, I kind of want to be on the sidelines and mm -hmm. I'm always been interested in relationships. And for me, I didn't know this until I kind of started doing dog photography, but I was studying unconditional love and I was studying the human condition and dogs were the vehicle for that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was afraid to say that in the beginning because I thought that would be like too esoteric. But I immediately learned, like, lean, and this is why I tell students, lean into what makes you incredibly unique and weird and charge for that and speak about that eloquently and confidently and people will find you and it's going to be totally okay. Um, so that's really what I was doing is because I'd worked with dogs for a long time and understood them deeply um, and, you know, I used... I was photographing what I knew very, very well. So like when the kids went and, you know, barged into your door, if that happened to me, I would be like, I don't know what to do with children. I don't know how to anticipate what they're going to do. But with dogs, you know, for whatever reason, I can anticipate what they're going to do. I'm very comfortable and confident around them. And I know as someone who's had a dog for a long time, what that relationship is like, all mm -hmm. the ins and outs. So it's like I was, I'm just telling a story for these clients who want someone to tell a story instead of just make a picture or something terrible like a snapshot um and it was really fulfilling because it was very emotional and i built a lot of it was a long a long tail of a relationship with my clients by the time they got to my studio to purchase prints and do an in-person sales meeting which i encourage um it was an easy sale and it wasn't like i was a used car salesman i was like i've made these beautiful images that you've paid me to make for you and have succeeded mm -hmm. if my clients weren't crying i have not worked hard enough what i would tell them and then the sale was easy and everyone was happy and I made money and I don't know. It's just very fulfilling. Yeah. I mean, first of all, a dog photographer that has a studio, number one to me is an interesting wrinkle that, that, you know, cause most of the time you're shooting on location, yeah. you're not in there and to bring someone back to a studio, it just p puts you in a different light compared to someone. I didn't have a studio. I shot everything on location. And so there's an upside to that and a, and a downside. Mm -hmm. um, but, and so growing up, did your family have dogs? No, there's actually a photo behind you, um, which you probably can't see. But uh, uh, when I was growing up, we had a little cabin in New Hampshire. And one of our family friends had this dog. I think his name was August. Um, it was a golden retriever. And there's a photo of me like lying on top of that dog. So our family friends had dogs. And then mm -hmm. for some reason, as a quiet child, I just gravitated to like all of the family friends' dogs. Again, I, yeah, we weren't raised with dogs. I just, I think I'm like a quiet, sensitive individual who, who has always just really loved being around dogs. And I can't explain why, but. And so were you, the, the three people that you assisted for for a year prior who taught mm -hmm. you lighting and, and really sort of, you know, helped, helped train you over that time yeah. period. 
historically dogs, I think of William Wegman, I think some mm -hmm. of the Elliot Erwitt pictures, there's yep. been other famous sort of dog photographers out there and Erwitt, you know, has photographed a zillion things, let yes. alone just dogs. But talk about influences, even outside of photography, like what, but at this point in your life, you're a photographer, you're getting into this, you're, now you're a dog photographer. Where, because when I look at your bookshelf, there's a lot of different topics on that bookshelf and there's a lot of different photo books on that bookshelf across the genres. So like, who were some of the people that jumped out early? Yeah. When I was taking classes at City College, um, I was just telling someone this, this story recently, I would take my little classes um, and I would go to the library at City College and spend like an hour, at least once a week, photocopying art books that I could couldn't afford. And then I would tack them up kind of like here, um, all over my little apartment in San Francisco. And, and by osmosis, those things, I would live with them. And I really believe in like experiencing concepts, you know? And so Annie, Annie Leibovitz is like my number one <clears throat> photographer hero, um, Deanne Arbus, mm -hmm. um, people doing weird, crunchy, grungy sort of, but incredibly well executed and emotional portraits of people. Um, well, I, I always say that I approached photographing dogs the same way I would approach photographing people. I don't know why anyone would do it any differently. Um, it should not be demeaning or cute. It's, you know, it's a subject that should be revered and you should understand. So, you know, I used, to, I still have all those books, but I would look at those books over and over again and learn, I think, how to relate to my subjects, mm -hmm. relate to the physical space, find light in interesting ways, find texture, you know, use depth of field, and incorporate all these incredibly important key elements of photography. But again, the end result is a photograph of, hopefully, you know, a, a beautiful photograph of a dog existing in a space. Maybe there is a touch of a human element in there for to sort of speak on relationship, and it's a good formula. Yeah, it's interesting to think that, you know, you're studying uh, the only difference between their world and your world is the is the, the creature that's in the crosshairs of the of the lens. Yeah. And but everything else, light, timing, composition. And I think that's interesting because when I look at the photographers who are on your bookshelf, that's a very sophisticated lot. And I think that that's reflected in your work. Whereas I think a lot of like portrait, especially family portrait photographers don't necessarily come from that, from that angle. Right. And again, I mean, as a photographer, I reserve the right to be a snobby photographer. As sure. We all are. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, so I, I even like, I mean, I, I'm the worst snobby photographer, I will say I want, <laughs> and I love teaching and I love helping other artists. That's great. Even if you're doing family photography or dogs or whatever, but I just get so let down when people cannot come up with their unique idea or style. And I also tell students that all the time, like you cannot repeat what someone else did. Yeah. Because it's already been done. It's already been done. Number one. So you're kind of, it's disappointing, I think. And number two, you're going to have a really hard time making your mark in the photography world. If photographer number like photographer X next door already does white shirts and khakis on the beach, please never again do that ever again. If you start doing that, no one's going to, you're not special. You're not thinking outside the box. It's our responsibility as image makers and storytellers to be unique. Yeah. So whenever I approach a project or, you know, a subject matter, I always research what's been done. Like, okay, Elliot Erwitt, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, yeah. So he did 35 millimeter. He did a little bit grungier in New York, whatever. So how can I do something informed by the world of photography, but that's not been done? Um, so anyways, I just get very, very 
disappointed and like infuriated when I see people doing family photography that is the same as it was 10 years ago. Like you gotta do better. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, the, you mentioned something, white shirts and jeans on the beach. That's actually a really interesting sociological phenomenon. And that was started by a single photographer in Orange County, California. And not only a single photographer in Orange County, and I'm not going to use his name, but at a single specific beach in Orange County, California. Hmm. That literally, apparently this guy went to a uh, trade show or something and gave a talk and showed images from this beach. And it suddenly just it, it exploded at a level I was in Southern California doing the portraits of the kids, and occasionally when I would show up at a shoot, they would get the family would get out in white shirts and jeans, and I'd be like, I'm not doing this. Oh but what I did is I actually went back to that beach, and I would go on my own, and I would photograph the other photographers photographing people in white shirts and jeans because to me it was so telling of sort of mainstream middle culture of yes. this is good enough. And I think you're old enough to also have lived through this where photography – went from having a unique style or doing everything in your power to be unique to hearing that dr those dreaded words of good enough. Ugh. And if you're doing this for a living, you can't live that way. Well, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I think I know the photographer you're speaking of. Um, that, that formula of like, okay, everyone, here's how to do family photography, and you just repeat that guy. It, it happened and still happens in dog pet photography. I hate the word pet photography, but I have c colleagues um, who, you know, and they make good money and so good for them, but they do these workshops and all these pet photographers who I think are, again, I'm going to be roasted, but whatever, <laughs> the, you know, kind of good enough. They pay money. They all take the exact same shot. They're taught this good enough style and then they recreate it all over the country in whatever city all over the world. And they're like, look at my portfolio. I took this portfolio at this class. And every other photographer made the exact same image from the exact same angle mm -hmm. because they were told to. And they never have one unique idea in their brain. And they're like, why am I spinning my wheels? Why, am I, why is my career not taken off? And it makes me bonkers. I think the single most important thing you can do as a photographer is to find what it is you do that's unique because it's the only thing you can do that has value. Because if Jesse Frieden makes an image that I can't make, then the client can't come to me and get into a price battle to say, well, you know, Jesse, yeah, his pictures are great, but Dan can make the same pick for half the price. That's exactly right. So if you've got something unique, you can say, well, I understand if you don't want to pay me, but you're not going to get this anywhere else. And, and then you have leverage. That's right. And that, that's the message that I was taught from my mentors. And I'm incredibly grateful for them because they were doing high-end family photography that people weren't really doing. Um, but, and that's the message that I would always tell clients. And again, like, most of my clients, because of the verbiage on my website and the word of mouth and being around for a long time, they usually, at, certainly at this point and a couple years in, were sort of self-selecting anyways. But I would say, okay, so, you know, blah, 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 here's my spiel. The typical investment is like five to $10,000 in prints. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to be there by your side. And I wasn't bullshitting them. Most of them would be like, great, I get it. And some of them would be like, well... Yeah, Joe Schmo down the street who does bubblegum pet photography at the Sears whatever studio is charging me $200 and giving me all the digitals. And I'm like, that's oh. spectacular. And everyone has their own style. Yeah. So you choose what's best for you. And please don't come to me. Yeah. Again, I might be roasted for this. But that's how I ran my business and it worked. But I also think, too, that there is something, there's something inherent in you because once you study or learn or dive in or invest to a certain level, then you're at the point where you can't forget what you've learned and what you've seen and like the context of where you are. So when I was in 
I guess I was in maybe a freshman in high school. We were living in Texas, and in the city that we were in, which is a pretty sizable city, there was one portrait, family portrait photographer who was the man. Like, this dude financially just killed it. So yeah. he had a super successful studio. He had a bevy of photographers working for him. And as a surprise for my parents, how this happened, I have no idea, because I'm look, the pictures are so bad. and They're so bad, they're good, and we have them all hanging on the wall at home because they're so bad, they're good. And... He came in, and I remember this now. I didn't know anything about photography at the time. He shot three setups, three shoots, three different outfits. So we all had to change three times. He shot the entire thing on one 12 exposure roll of Hasselblad. No. And, and he shot, so four frames of each. He shot the entire thing. The only thing that slowed him down was us changing clothes. So, and it was bang, 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 bang. And he was out and he made this huge prints of these and he hung them in his studio above the door. So like all of my friends and friends' families would go in and they'd say, ah, I saw your family's pictures. On one hand, you have to credit someone like that who's found the business and found the sweet spot. And there's nothing wrong with the pictures. They just weren't, they were that middle of the road stuff. But what is it inside of you? What do you think triggered, what was the thing that pushed you past the point of saying, I've got to be this unique person? I, and it, my, my guess is maybe it was in photography or maybe it wasn't photography. It's a question no one's ever asked me. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably a combination of a lot of things. I was raised, you know, by doctors. Um, and there's no other artists in my family. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that there are no other creative people in my family. My mother was an artist, you know, as a sort of... Um, second kind of career um, later in her life. But I was raised by incredibly high function, not functioning, high striving, high hardworking people. Um, so there was even, I was always different when I was like, I was born, I was put on this planet. I was always kind of the kid that stuck out, especially in my family. So I was just used to that. And as much as like all humans conform to society, including me, I just, I wasn't interesting to me. Photography is something I've always been so deeply passionate about. And the fact that I was able to figure out a way to turn my true passion into a career, I did not take it lightly. And I also, I just remember, again, like when I started my working at that studio and I was learning, you know, I was thinking about like, how can this be a career? And I started photographing dogs. I remember going to the gym and I'd be running on the treadmill and I would be like, all of my goals, I would just cycle through all of my goals. I was like, I and this sounds very egotistical, but I was like, I want to be the best photographer, dog photographer in the country. And I don't know how that goal came into my head, but that was, that was my goal. And I would just be like, this is my goal. This is my goal. And I just worked really hard at it. And I just wasn't, I don't know, being mediocre was just never, it's never been interesting to me. So, so we are going to take a pause for a battery change because I'm down to one bar and this thing's going to die in the middle of something profound that you're saying. Sounds and by the smart. way, if you think this is completely unprofessional that I started with um, knowing that my batteries might die halfway, you would be correct. But you know what? I did it anyway. Hang on. Okay. We got fresh batteries. We are, I mean, this is literally, we're on track. We could go now for hours. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there, there's something you touched on earlier that I, I just want to bounce back to because having started in analog photography in my career. So you're a dog photographer, and it would be so easy to get a Canon or a Nikon or a Fuji or a Panasonic or a Lumix or a Pentax and bang 10,000 digital frames and dump those on a disc and burn, turn and burn and give those to a client. 
which is in great part one of the reasons why the professional photo industry got eroded is people doing that. But no, 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 you don't do that. You shoot a Hasselblad. You process your film alone. You're not even shipping to L.A. to get it scanned and processed. No, you're processing never. the film. You're making your own chemistry. You're making darkroom prints. That is a horrendous amount of work. Like, what was the turnaround time for? And, and when you, and let's talk for a second, um, not just about that aspect, but about the edit. Because if you're making silver gelatin prints, you're not banging out 20, 30 prints you're making a selection. So how on, what was the turnaround time and how critical was that edit process? Um, yeah, I always told clients, and, and for, to be fair, I, I shot the Hasselblad exclusively for a long time, and then I, I added a Contact 645. So Ooh, lovely. Beautiful. I just sold that, which is sad. But also, you can't <laughs> fix them anymore. Yeah. Anyways, but for me, that was like, oh my gosh, autofocus, you know. Um, and then when I started my first book, which was uh, seven years ago or something, I got uh, Canon 5D. And I used that on Trader. and off. Trader. Oh, felt Sell very out. guilty. Thank you. Uh, I, I started using that a little bit for dog photography. But for the first 10 years, for sure, all film, um, I did tell clients, like, it was, a, it was a months long. You know, they would come in, they would call me, I'd say, come into the studio in San Francisco, in the Bayview, we'd have a you know, a, a creative meeting, a console, and then we'd schedule a session. You know, they wouldn't have work in hand for at least two months if things were flowing smoothly. Sometimes yeah. it was, and they were fine with that. But yeah, I, I when I was shooting the Hasselblad, I had maybe like three or four film backs and I never had an assistant because I'm just a control freak. And like, you know, I <laughs> yeah. don't, that's just whatever. Yeah. So I, you know, I would be changing film. It was just chaos, but I loved that chaos and I was in control of it in a way. So... Um, I, I would shoot no more than a brick of film. I don't know, five, 10, 10 rolls 12, of 120. Yeah. 120. Exactly. Yeah. The HP five, a great film. Um, and then I would make contact sheets and then I would for myself, not for my clients. And then I would select, um, this is the whole process. So I'd select no more than 20 images, usually like 18. And I okay. would tell them, I'm only going to show you my, my selections. So what would happen is. I would make my selections. Then I would go upstairs. We'd had a, a drum scanner, which I have one now. Wow, nice. Um, I would scan my selections okay. and do a quick edit so they, you know, give them a little contrast. The clients would come in. We'd have, we'd have a projector. I would project the image, my selections. I would mock them up so they look like they were matted and framed. This is what I was taught. This is the process I was taught. Wow. It works very well. This is fascinating. I don't know any of this. Yeah. Did you ever go to my studio in San Francisco? I don't no, think you did. No, I, I met you in downtown LA. Yeah. So yeah. it was similar. So um, they would sit down, you know, we'd wine and dine them a little bit, um, which means just like having some snacks out. And then it would be a big reveal. And that was, and the anticipation helped. Um, and I, you know, I, it would just be very calm and I would walk them through, I would curate you know, it was like an emotional sort of roller coaster of a presentation. And we'd go through once and look at all the work. I can do this with my eyes closed now, obviously, for sure. I've done it a million times. And then we'd go through again and start narrowing it down. And maybe there would be five to like 10 images. And maybe, uh, you know, they want to buy 10 images. That's great. Usually it was like they'd buy three or four bigger pieces, a few smaller pieces. Um, I forget what the question was, but anyways, the... The edit, how, how important edit. that tight edit is, because you've so got to print important. those in the wet darkroom. Exactly. So, I mean, again, if a client wanted to buy 10 images, they never would. I mean, a big order would be like six pieces, but, you know, a couple of bigger pieces, a couple of smaller. Um, I, I also, I think showing a client more than 20 images 
more than 15 images, it, it, it wears their brain out. Yeah, it and, diminishes the whole thing. Yeah, so like they trust me. They've, uh, there's, there was a lot of steps to building trust from the second they got to the website to the coming to the studio. So by the time I'm like, here it's the best ones, they were like, cool, we trust you. You know, that is so interesting because in essence, if you, when digital arrived and people were able to shoot basically unlimited amount of work and then to, to burn those images on a disc and walk away, hand that to a client and walk away, is, um, it's not good. There, there's really nothing about that that's good. But what you were doing was basically painstakingly emphasizing the, the relevance of the work that you're creating, mm -hmm. where you're, these, are a, these are now a precious object. Yes. This is not disposable, turn and burn, spray and pray kind right. of photography. And uh, there's not many people that are working that way. No. And, you know, the reason why, there was many reasons why it worked, again, having a, a, a nice studio, which I was very lucky to share in the first, you know, many years, and then I got my own studios. But, um, it, again, it's, it's creating a sense that, like, we are all in that studio fine artists. You trust us to tell mm -hmm. your story, whether it's a kid or a family or a dog. Um, we have big prints on the wall, you know, they, I would tell them, which was not a lie, that I would cut all my mats by hand. I selected all of our materials. Everything was signed. And so they got excited about having a piece from an artist. And, and that's what I see myself as an artist. I don't see myself as just like a, yeah, kind of photographer necessarily. But also a lot of my clients, for that reason, were art collectors in their, themselves. Some of mm -hmm. them were like insane art collectors, and I... <laughs> would, would just want to see their art, art in their house. Um, and some of them were beginners, but they were like, we know how to buy art, most mm -hmm. of them. Or even if they were younger people, which some of the clients were, um, then maybe they spent like 3000 or $4,000 on prints. They were so excited to have this thing that was going to last forever. And it all just worked. And in my opinion, your, your audience was probably a very narrow band of people. And how much time did you spend finding and focusing on that narrow band? Yeah, I mean, I was always fine-tuning. I was always yeah, kind of fine-tuning and making sure that I was speaking directly to that community. So in the very beginning, um, I, I knew who I did want to work with. And I, I basically had to make it up because I were, were really weren't any other sort of fine art dog photographers yeah. doing what I was doing. So... It took a lot. It took a lot of the first few years were immense hustle, putting up my work anywhere anyone would let me, um, showing it anywhere, you know, doing any kind of news article I could do so people could understand that this is not, this is unique. No one else in San Francisco was doing that. And still, there's very, very few people that are doing black and white dog work. And again, I don't know, I know some colleagues that are doing really cool black and white work, but no one does their own printing. No one does their own matting. Mm -mm. No one cuts their own frames. Um, yeah, so it stood out. So there's a part of the, back, the background scene of this business that's intriguing to me because, um, again, I think you and I have similar uh, personalities in some way in the sense that in, in the introvert, introverted side. But yet you've got to bring these people into your studio multiple times you've kind of, you're putting on a show oh, yeah. to, to emphasize your work. How hard was that? How hard was that part for you? That was definitely the hardest part. I, I, I felt very comfortable holding a camera and making the images, but in the beginning, um, I was convinced that I was going to have to hire someone to do my sales. Cause I was, I'd never, <laughs> I'd never b spent time with this kind of sort of this kinds of people. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up 
very privileged with smart people in my family and whatever. So, but I'd never, as an adult, like been to someone's home that had, you know, original William Wegmans or, or like Ansel Adams, you know, and I had to just pretend that it was normal. So in the beginning, <laughs> I did not think, I, I didn't think I could do it. And I, I honestly couldn't do it. I didn't have the confidence until my very first client, which was a dog park friend, um, where I used to take my dog in Petrero Hill. He was an interior decorator. And he's like, oh, and I just started. I, don't, I think I was maybe still interning. And um, he's like, yeah, one of my clients is a bajillion dollars and they have a dog and kids and we, you know, work with them. So I, I was like, of course, making it all up. That first sale was $6,000 of prints. And that, again, was like, okay, I, I can do this. However, I wish I had, like, recorded that because I'm sure I was so incredibly anxious. And it took an incredible amount of practice, but that's – it. it Perfecting anything takes practice. Mm-hmm. If you're afraid to make mistakes, and you you should not do this job, you yeah. know. Um, but then, after I did it so many times, it, I did. I it's like I had my work persona. I always had like um, something. I was taught this on some podcast for like entrepreneurs, like a, a watch or something in my pocket, or like I wore something on me that was like an emblem. Okay, this is my work persona. You know, like I can just put a nice shirt on and jeans, but like I had this, this watch that was passed down to me, I put on and I put it on, went to the studio, got all cleaned up. And once my clients left, I took it off and I was like, Oh God, I'd be so tired, (laughs) but I could do it. That's the same. When I do talks for blurb, which I have done a couple in the past week and pretty much every time somebody comes up and says, um, you know, man, this like, you're, you're good at these talks. Or your personality is so well suited to this. And I say, thank you. And then that's not me. That's the version of me that's right. manufactured to do that. Exactly. And then when it's over, uh, my, it's like you pull the drain plug at the bottom of my soul and it spills out on the ground and I have to go back to the hotel or into the van and like cry and no. by myself and I rebuild it up again. And it's been that way for 13 years. No, it, so it's a, it's a, did that, the next question I had was about aspects that are not related, a skill or aspect not related to photography that assisted you with this job and that could be a psychology class in my in my instance i minored in anthropology the study of human behavior and i that was really critical in helping me get through some of this stuff was there any could it be woodworking it could be anything what was because you're cutting your own frames and cutting your own mats so there's a there's a hands-on tool-based part of you as well what came out of right field that you thought man i never thought that was going to come into play i think it was the two main things that i can think of one my mother was uh psychiatrist my sister's a therapist there was like so many therapists in my life growing up to my chagrin um but I think it was and there was a point in time when I started I think my photography career or like maybe I was still working with dogs and I went home to Boston and my mom's like okay well you'd be a good therapist and I was like shut up mom um but I, I eventually realized that um I am really curious about people and I really like being an observer and there's something so challenging. Like I used to do those photo booths for dogs, which oh, I feel yeah, like yeah. you've heard about. Um, yeah. And and even in that, it's similar to an actual session, but I have like five minutes and I freaking love the pressure. I love the pressure of in a contained uh, environment, bonding with a person, bonding with their dog, being really calm and confident and making this one snapshot happen with Polaroid film. And people would be so amazed, but I love working under pressure. And I think... So I think just coming from a family of, um, like, therapists, um, and also I, 
when I started working with dogs, just because I needed a job in San Francisco as a younger person, um, I became so fascinated with just relating to an animal that doesn't, or a thing that doesn't speak, but mm-hmm. you are having a nonverbal communication. And I always, like when I have to work with kids, which sometimes there would be kids in my sessions, or anything, especially the project that I'm doing now, whenever I'm working with a human I don't know, I approach it the same way I would approach a dog I don't know, which is like giving space for there to be curiosity and building trust and being quiet and letting them kind of come to me. And I don't think I would have ever been able to learn that had I not worked with dogs. Um, Yeah. It's interesting, the parallels there. We, on the way here, we were probably 10 minutes away from your house. We're driving down the road and my wife looks out and there's a sign that says free stuff, which for my wife is like, you know, a lightning bolt coming down. So I turn the van around and go back. And I park the van and get out and this dog comes running over and I'm studying this look of this dog and it's right down the middle. It's, it's 50% this dog is going to bite me and 50% the dog's going to lick my hand. Mm -hmm. And so I just get out of the van and the owner is standing there and the owner says, you have to ignore her. If you reach for her or give her any attention, she might bite you. And so that I, I totally get what you're saying about going into this, into the shoots because if you throw kids and then the kids' parents are there, obviously, because of the shoot, and dad, maybe dad had a bad day, or dad doesn't, th- think, doesn't like what you're doing in the That's first right. place, and mom was the one that hired you, or vice versa, that is a dynamic that you are managing. And tell me if this happened. Were, did you have parallel conversations running in your head at the same time? Like, I'm focused on the photography, but I'm also listening to what they're saying. Always. And managing yeah. all of these things in your head, which is probably why you're so exhausted at the end of the shoot. No, I, that's totally right. I mean, I loved the dog photography. It was it was like a circus. And I don't usually like chaotic things, you know. But for some reason, it was a circus that I was so familiar with because I spent so many years working with dogs um, that, yeah, I was, of course, like, focusing on the dogs and like I always think of this one session I had years ago there was a corgi there was two kids there was a dad bless his heart he like had some new fancy camera trying to shoot over my shoulder no thank you and I had to be like managing him managing the mom who was pissed at the dad then the and those images were freaking great but it was yeah you're 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 the reason why I love photography is you're making and a piece of art within the actual real time frames of the universe you're not painting a picture of something that's already been done. You're not, it's not coming out of your mind. You're there creating in the moment with mm-hmm. your subjects and there's something so dynamic about it. And it's exhausting. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah. Um, the, the, the next thing I want to I hit on, which sort of leads us towards where we're going uh, with the last third of this interview, which is about the current project that you're working on. But I mentioned this earlier. It's pretty rare today that I run into a photographer who says, I've shot whatever. I shot um, guitars for the last 40 years. It's typically there's a continual evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, I went from studying photojournalism to the newspaper world, to the magazine world, to the commercial world, to the wedding world, to the portrait world, to the blurb world. And that's from 1992 to present day. And, and that's kind of like not even high on the list of watching people evolve around me. So how difficult was it for you to adapt throughout? Because you, were, you, you did a long run with the dogs, but now you've sort of transitioned into this other style of photography that you're doing how difficult or how freeing was that it, it, it the hard part was i had was had been ready i photographed dogs for like i think almost 15 years and i'd been ready you know 10 years in to do something different and i didn't know because i just didn't want to repeat myself because mm-hmm. i for some reason felt like that was 
I just wasn't good enough for me, even though it would have been easy to continue doing that. Um, the hard part was walking away from a career that made me good money, that was like a well-oiled machine. It just, it was going, you know? It was hard to walk away from that because, I mean, I also loved photographing dogs. and I love my clients. Sure. But that was hard to be like, okay, I'm going to do something where I don't know if it's going to make me any money. I don't know if anyone's going to care. Maybe it's too hard. No one's going to know who I am in this world. But the second, the second I decided to close my dog photography studio, I was so nervous. And I was, I sent out my newsletter and basically announced it. I was like, my clients are going to hate me. (laughs) You know, I had all these, I was like, my career's over. The second I sent it, I felt such euphoria. I really, really did. I was like, I, I love taking risks, even though I was in that career for so long, but I took a risk in that career. And once I decided to shift years, I, I, I was just off the races and it was like so freeing. And it's taken probably like three years or something. Yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic to now for it to, you know, feel like this is my, my, a new chapter of my career Mm. and it feels good. Do you remember having a conversation with me when you were on the fence about what to do, keep the dogs or, or close the studio? Were we at Iconic? I remember a conversation we had at Iconic, but no, tell me. And I was like, I just immediately said, do it, do it. Because I had done the exact same thing back in 2010 when I was photographing kids full time. And I, that's the only thing I miss about photography are the, the kids themselves and the relationships I sure. had with the kids and the parents. And I thought the same thing. The parents are going to be upset or the kids are going to be upset. And I was really kind of in love with watching these kids grow up and going from shooting them in elementary school, watching them graduate from high school right. and get into college. And some of these kids actually, when, as a joke, we would always say, Uncle Dan's here to take the photographs. And some of these kids legitimately thought I was their uncle. And so, but I knew that it was time for me to go. And when I did, right. there was about a two week window of uncertainty and then this weight of saying, I, I don't know what I'm doing next, but it's, I know it, I feel this is, it just felt so good yeah. to walk away. Mm-hmm. And um, so you've transitioned. Tell us what you're doing now. Tell us about this latest project that you're doing, because this has been pretty much all consuming for quite a while now. So lay the foundation for us. Yeah. So um, basically for the past three years, I've been working on this project called Are You Okay?, which is a national documentary project slash archive. I've been driving around the country photographing trans and non-binary youth with supportive families um, and pairing those portraits with interviews. Um, I I really just, it's been all crowdfunded, all through, not using Kickstarter or anything, just through a link on my website. Um, And it's been incredible. I just feel like I felt as a queer person that I needed to participate and use my voice um, after not doing that for so long. And it's incredibly difficult. It's a very, very horrifying time for trans kids and trans people. And I always say I'm not smart enough to be a lawyer, but I can tell a compelling story and I have confidence in that. So my goal with this project, which is, I guess, the same goal I had with the two other books, projects that I Mm -hmm. did, um, was to see if I could tell a compelling enough story to remove stigma from a stigmatized community um, through a kind of portrait that we're not seeing. So again, you know, all the images that we see in the news um, about trans kids, especially are one, usually white kind of upper class binary gendered kids. Um, And I don't want to, you know, I want to support that 
kind of kid, but I also want to support a diverse um, group of trans young people. And, you know, there's always these the portraits of these kids, like the New York Times, et cetera. They're sullen, they're sad, they're depressed, they're alone, they're being judged. And I did not want to do that. So um, I, I just started this as a, a project to see what would happen. And again, kind of like the dogs, I remember the very first test project shoot I did was in Albuquerque. And I was driving the one hour from Santa Fe to Albuquerque being like, oh, I, I still wasn't totally sure. I knew... I, I kind of knew what I wanted um, visually, but I remember like five minutes away and I was like, oh, I had, had this idea of doing a, a meditation with the kids beforehand, like Very five, interesting. five deep yep. breaths, you know, but a way to like get them to be exactly in the mental space I wanted. And it all just, I had that one session, that first portrait is still one of my favorites. So. Now, the timing of this is interesting because... Over the past, whatever, three, four years, five years, there's all of a sudden this is a major topic in a major way. And sadly, it's a major topic in a major way in some pretty negative ways. You look at what's happening in Florida and Texas and places like that, and you're like, it just mind-boggling. Was that the impetus to get this started, or was it coincidental that this happened at the same time? No, definitely that was the reason. You know, I, I had been concerned uh, at the start of the bathroom bills, um, what was it, like six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was concerned about that. And I, as a person, a queer person, a person with Holocaust trauma, I am always on alert. You know, I don't do good at relaxing. I'm always looking at behind me. And I was just, what I thought was paranoia, which now is just a true sense of awareness, was, you know, our community is going to be annihilated. We're under attack. And so... I felt basically there was just some good timing of being so done with dogs. The pandemic hit, the lease on my studio in Santa Fe was up. And I was just angry enough to be like, fuck it. Excuse me, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. Sure. Um, Feel uh, free. Okay, thanks. Uh, and I just I just needed a, a huge change, and I was so angry. And I just, photography has always been a way for me to digest things. Um, and yeah, and, and, and it's, it started, and I haven't stopped for three years. And how difficult was the transition for from from fur to uh, to humans? You know, I I kind of was I didn't know what to expect because I'm photographing kids that are under the age of 24. So it's like I photograph five and six year olds, I photograph middle schoolers, I photograph college kids. Um, I wasn't sure how I would relate to them as 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 young people. Um, you know. They talk about things. I don't know all the words, like all the video games and all the things. Sure. But it wasn't important. You know, um, I was showing up. There's a lot of, you know, because this is such a divisive topic, I won't say political because it's not the queer community's fault that we've been politicized, but it is divisive. So um, I spent a lot of time educating the f- kids and families before they showed up yeah. to make sure they knew this is going to be very public. Um, here's the pros and cons of participating in a project that will go hopefully everywhere. But by the time the kids showed up and I talked about, you know, myself a bit, there was a lot of trust and the kids really, really, really wanted to show up. My goal with this project is to basically offer a platform and and give, pass the mic to these kids and their families. Um, And so they are excited to have 
you know, just this one small way I'm offering them to do their own kind of activism. Um, and describe, there's a consistency to the, to the framing and consistency to the subject matter, the composition. D describe a typical frame from mm -hmm. this project. Yeah, so for me, this is like part social study, part ethnography, part fine art project. But um, I had this concept of, um, so all of the frames are pretty much the exact same setup with obviously the small differences and subject matter and, and positioning and detail. Like I love that stuff. That's what stands out. But I always have the kids sitting um, kind of like a three quarter turn. I have these two banged up chairs that I found, you know, um, as posing stools and their parents or their supportive chosen family are standing behind them, but you don't see their faces. Um, and I, decided to do that because I was trying to figure out a way, again, I want to make an image that hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. And I've always been curious about headless portraits. Um, so I wanted to articulate in one single frame that the only way to have a trans and non-binary kid is to support them. And the parents are incredibly important as an abstract wall of support, but I almost don't want to know who they are. In the interview, of course, they're, they're participating, but mm -hmm. it was so much about the kid and me. And... And so I've been repeating that, that setup. What's interesting to me is when I first saw that work, first the diversity of the kids that you're looking at, it's, it's all, across, you know, all across the range and the scale. But to me, what you can see of the parents was really interesting. Yeah. And what I found myself doing, which is probably a terrible thing, but I think, that's part, I think it's a legitimate reaction to the story, is I would see the parents and I would stereotype the parents based on clothing or body position or how they were posing yeah. and in my head and I was like why am I doing that but the 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 reality of the picture was always completely different from my stereotype mm -hmm. which I found fascinating mm -hmm. and so I'm sitting here in your your apartment and I'm looking across and I'm seeing these cases on the ground and we've talked about books we've talked about your newsletter we've talked about you're on probably Instagram and social and those things let's talk about the um you've worked on this now for three years there's um, books are still very much front and center in your life, prints and books, but you're also, you've got a pop-up exhibition. You've got, you're kind of hitting all the channels here, which I think is a great story and lesson for anybody who's working in the modern era is how is this going out in the world? Right. right. Yeah. I, it, another way that this has been very freeing is that I am like this, I mean, this is my career as, as a good friend said I am maybe mid-career which seems weird but I'm happy to take that um, that's, a, that's a slap yeah <laughs> I mean it's better than beginning of career I guess anyways um it's hard I don't know I, I'm like is this I still wake up sometimes I'm like is this my job and it, it is my job thankfully but um anyways I, I I felt free after being taking a step away from the dog work to do things in a totally different way so I prioritized putting off traditional exhibits, which I will now start doing soon. But what I first started doing is I was like, how can this get back into the community? I want, I don't want this to be a book that goes on the shelf. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want this to be an a, exhibit that only goes to galleries where yeah. the kids and yeah. families can't get to. So I through um, I went to um, filter photo review last year, oh, yeah, which yeah. was wonderful yeah. and yeah. approachable and fun. I met, uh, I made friends with a photographer there who connected me with one of his friends who has been, um, showed me uh, basically his pop-up exhibit he does about peace. It's called A Piece of My Mind. I think that's what it is. Um, it's really cool. Um, but he brings his pop-up exhibit to schools. And so I, I was like, this is a great uh, 
way to get this back into um, in front of kids to use this as a curriculum mm-hmm. to change hearts and minds, educate people what's happening. So, yeah, I'm using this weird marketing pop up banner, which I would never have thought as like a snobby photographer who used to make my own prints in the darkroom that yeah. I would do. Yeah, but. It's really cool, and the kids like it. It's interactive. There are QR codes. It can go anywhere. It doesn't need any special, you know, wall-hanging materials. It doesn't have to be in a gallery. And it makes the work immediately approachable. Um, and, yeah, it's been really cool to see how people react to it. And also, now there's companies and colleges that are paying me to bring it to them, so it's a way for me to be making money um, and also educate people. So it's kind of a win-win in my mind. God, that's that's actually fantastic. That you, I mean, that's pretty that happened pretty quickly, and it's an atypical delivery mechanism, which is int- pretty interesting. Yeah, and I will say, you know, I think a lot of things that I've done in my career have been done because I am a I like to be rebellious, and I hate being told what to do, which is not unique. But you know, I was told in the beginning of my dog photography career that no one would pay me. Um, for a handmade print of a dog. And I was like, cool, I'm going to do that because that means no one else is doing it and mm-hmm. screw you. Um, and also, yeah, I, I really, I was told um, by other colleagues that like, you cannot self-publish your book, which obviously you probably hear all the time. Yeah. Uh, I've been lectured about it. Um, and I was told like, oh, you can't make, you can't make these portraits, uh, print them on a fabric banner and bring them to schools and charge people. I'm like, cool, that's what I'm going to do. Like, I guess I just, I get motivated when people tell me that I can't do something. Yeah, that's good. It's working for you. It's working. It always has. Yeah. Another question I have is, as we've been driving across the country, my wife, Amy, you know, we've been staying with friends and friends' kids, and Amy's been asking a lot about the, the um, you know, trans issues at school. And what's interesting is that kids are awesome, number one, because, you know, every time Amy asks and says, you know, how many kids have come out or how many kids are this or that, the kids are like, yeah, tons, and it doesn't matter because we just move on. It's part of the equation. So when I look at that exhibition, who's the ultimate target audience for that? Because you're, it's, it has to be like two ways. You're going to have people are going to look at that and have a positive reaction, and people are going to have a negative reaction. And to me, the negative reaction is, is you know, that's the people I want to mm-hmm. see that in front of because you hope that it makes them see things in a different mm-hmm. way. Was there a – what's when you created this, was there someone you had specific you had in mind? Yeah, I mean – it's hard to make an exhibit to make an exhibit that is centered on a very contemporary divisive topic and make it approachable and accessible to like all the different groups but my first the the first community i had in mind was these kids i wanted to i was asking so much of them to show up for me all over the country i wanted to bring mm-hmm. this back to them and i wanted the kids first to see that there are so many other kids like them all around the country mm-hmm. that have supportive families. And I wanted to sort of share that positivity and joy with kids that didn't have it because I want to save their life first. Secondary, of course, I want to bring this around to communities that don't know what a trans person is, um, have a lot of horrible, harmful, violent, backwards views and educate them. You know, I also have this project insured, so when someone burns it down because they're angry at me, you know that school will pay me and I'll get it replaced. Yeah, and and um, yeah, it, it. I I don't I have not necessarily put this in front of a community yet that has been angry about it, but that will happen. Yeah, I, other than eventually. getting shit online, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I'm torn, you know, because it takes so much 
effort to bring this around. Um, and I'm not here, I'm, it's not my job to educate people. It's no one's job that from a marginalized group to educate people about their experience, period. But yeah, I, I'm sure that there will be times when um, someone, I, I won't mind having conversations about someone being like, oh, you've opened my, my eyes to this. Of course I'm into that. If someone comes up to me and is like, you're a freak, these kids are freaks, I'll be like, let's fucking go outside. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only answer I have, and that's yeah. going to be hard for me to, to not have that kind of answer. But I like it. I like the fire, fire burning in there. What's the, what, do you, what do you need that you don't have? What, what would take this, when you fall asleep at night and you're dreaming about mm-hmm. you know, Jesse the superstar and the, and the velvet jackets and the spotlights, with this project, where, what's the thing you don't have that you mm-hmm. need? Yeah, the next step, again, because I want this to get in front of kids and families, politicians, decision makers, so they can see who's being harmed by these horrible anti-trans bills and so that we can rally around joy and positivity as opposed to negativity, death threats, anti-trans legislation, et cetera. So my goal for next year is to find a fiscal sponsor um, of some sort because I'm not a nonprofit. And I don't think that I'm going to become one for various reasons. If I can find a nonprofit fiscal sponsor, I have a few ideas, um, to accept some larger donations that will then fuel a cross-country trip next year to go to schools, conferences, you know, uh, museums, um, so that I can do a pop-up exhibit, I can do a photo session, and then I can do a, a talk. That's going to cost money. But that's, that's what I'm planning for next year. Excellent. Um, well, congratulations on the project. It's pretty. It's been pretty amazing to watch that. Thank you. Seed germinate and become what it is today. That's a yeah. lot of work. It's not easy, and also just the transition for you. You know, on a personal level of going from the furry, easy, no feedback to back to the humans, which right. um, you know, it's a it's a challenge. But I, I so appreciate you sitting down and having this talk. Of course, it's always good to see you. And um, yeah, thanks. I think I think the audience is going to have a have fun looking through through your life history. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it.